0: As we begin our time in God's Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the blessings of worship, for the uh, unity that we have in song and prayer and scripture, uh, that we are joined together as believers, as those who have trusted in Christ, but we're joined together by your Spirit as well. And we know that you have not left us uh, alone to wonder and to try to achieve the, the works of the law through our own means, but rather you have given us your spirit so that we might truly understand your word and that we might live in obedience to the spirit and not to the letter of the law itself. And so, Lord, as we come to understand your spirit and his work in our lives today, I pray that you would bless us, that you would open our eyes to see the truth of your word. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, as we've done so far in our study on the Apostles' Creed, we're going to begin by reciting the Creed together, as uh, we've done each time we've come to a subject on this uh, mini-series that we've been in. And so in the center of your bulletin is printed the Apostles' Creed, and let's recite that together now as a statement of our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So when I began this mini-series on the Apostles' Creed, I pointed out that this creed is a Trinitarian creed. It is Trinitarian in its structure if you'll notice there are three major sections of the creed and we confess as we go through that that we believe in the nature and works of each person of the trinity so we've seen the nature and works of god the father as sovereign and creator and father in jesus we have seen him to be the lord and the son And we've seen his works of suffering and sacrifice and resurrection and rule. And so now we come to the third and final section of the Creed on the nature and works of the Holy Spirit. So the section begins with another restatement of what we believe in saying, I believe in the Holy Ghost. Now, unfortunately, as with all uh, the other two persons of the Trinity, Uh, There is no lack of confusion around the character and the works of the Holy Spirit. And so as I've done with uh, with many of these sermons through the Apostles' Creed, I want to start by explaining what we don't mean when we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then I want to explain what we do mean when we confess our belief in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we're going to study from two different passages today. Uh, so, if you want to go ahead and be turning there, you can. We're going to be primarily in in John chapter sixteen. We're going to look at verses one through fifteen, and then we're going to flip over at the end to Acts chapter one, verse eight. And so, we'll get to those passages in just a moment. But to begin with, I want to consider what we don't mean when we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit. So, first. In confessing that we believe in the Holy Spirit, we don't mean that we believe in some impersonal force. Uh, Now, many people treat the Holy Spirit as if he's similar to karma. In fact, you'll hear a lot of well-intentioned, I think, people try to compare the Holy Spirit to karma. As if if you do good things, then the Holy Spirit will reward you. If you do bad things, then he'll punish you. Um, and, and people compare that, believing that if you have enough faith, or if you live in a certain way, or if you do enough good deeds, then you can access the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Others treat the, the Spirit like a some sort of fickle force, a force that can be manipulated either by incantations or a mood or music that you play, or in in modern contemporary worship services, a fog machine or a light system. That if you set the right mood, then you can call down the Holy Spirit or you can cause the Holy Spirit to work within the congregation. And by by the, the inverse of that, if you don't have the right move. Then the Holy Spirit uh, mood, then the Holy Spirit is obviously not at work in your congregation. Now, I heard of one youth event in which the worship leader called on the congregation to count to three. And at the count of three, the Holy Spirit would be released into the congregation. Now, as we'll see in just a bit, the Holy Spirit is not a force, the Holy Spirit is a person. He is personal, he is active, and he acts upon his own will, not ours. Second, we do not believe that the Holy Spirit is realized through the emotional or the ecstatic experience. Now, in the second century, there arose a sect of Christianity known as the Montanist. They believed that they were the true church, because they had gifts of prophecies and tongues, and because they had a more sincere, ecstatic worship. Now, this belief has obviously continued even to this day in the Pentecostal movement. Now, while, gifts, while the gifts of the Spirit do include prophecy and healing and tongues, it should be noted that there are severe limits placed on these gifts in Scripture, And Paul even advises the Christians in Corinth against a fascination with them. Additionally, there is nothing in the New Testament that indicates that an experience of the Holy Spirit results in some sort of emotional outburst or ecstatic experience. Now, when I say that, I want to be careful to point out that the Old Testament, the Psalms, are replete with examples of people coming to terms with the truth of Scripture, coming to terms with the reality of God, coming to terms with the worship of God and raising their hands or crying or hitting their knees in prayer or, or uh, jumping for joy and shouting for joy. There are plenty of examples in the Psalms of worshipers being called to do those things. But understand that that is not evidence of the work of the Spirit in the heart of a person as much as it is a response of the person to the reality of who God is. Okay, The reason I want to make that clarification is because so often today, and I run into this all the time, and it's a significant pet peeve of mine, both in the church in general, but especially among pastors, is there's this assumption that if you are emotional or if you are passionate or if you have a certain gravitas about you, then you are, quote, filled with the Spirit. And if you are filled with the Spirit, then it really doesn't matter what you say, you're right. So you could be a a downright heretic, but if you're, quote, filled with the Spirit, then you must be right because you're passionate or you're emotional or you're ecstatic. Okay? Okay. The Bible, and I could, in studying for this for this subject, I did my best to search Scripture for any time that there is a comparison or an association between the work of the Spirit and some sort of ecstatic response in the people that did it. So, for example, running around the sanctuary, flipping your towel around, or or jumping up and down and speaking crazy talk in the the service. That does not exist in Scripture. It doesn't exist. Get it out of your head. That is more connected to pagan worship, frankly, than to Christian worship. Christian worship, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is to be done in order. In good order is what he says. It is to be ordered and and focused on the glory of God, not on the ec- ecstatic experience of the worshiper. Okay, so when we talk about the the work of the Spirit and who the Spirit is, we are not saying that we believe that the Holy Spirit is realized just through the emotional and just through the ecstatic. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that if you're an emotional person and you come come to terms with the, your salvation and you cry that you're, you're not doing something right. I believe that you should weep for your sin. I believe that you should shout for joy at your salvation. I believe if the preacher makes a good point, you should say amen. amen. All right, there you go. Good. I was just making sure. Uh, <laughs> or praise the Lord at, at, at the choir singing a good song or, or whatever it, be, it may be. That, those are good, healthy responses to good Christian worship and preaching. But they are not necessarily. An evidence of the work of the Spirit. They can be, but they're not a direct evidence of the work of the Spirit. So some preacher comes in here and he bangs on the pulpit and he starts telling you uh, all this stuff about who, uh, what you should believe and all that. You believe him not because he's passionate, but because what he says is from Scripture. That is the only reason to believe any pastor or Sunday school teacher or anyone. Not because they're passionate and can and can rile people up. The reason I say that is there has been no telling the number of false beliefs and abuse that has been ignored or even encouraged and accepted within churches because of a church leader's sincerity or passion. So we need to be, as Jesus says, as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves on this matter. We need to be careful about what we accept, not just because someone is emotional do we accept them as, quote, spirit-filled. So now that we understand what we don't mean, let's consider what we do mean when we confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit. And there are three things that we believe about the Holy Spirit That I want to point out today. First of all, we believe that the Spirit is a person, that he is powerful, and that he is the presence of God with us. That he is a person, he is powerful, and he is the presence of God with us. So first, the Holy Spirit is a person. For that, let's look at John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whenever he, he, whenever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, in this long passage, there are three personal attributes of the Holy Spirit that Jesus points to that I think are helpful in understanding what we mean when we say that Jesus, uh, that the Holy Spirit is a person. First, notice that the Holy Spirit is spoken of in personal terms. In verses 7, 8, 13 and 14, Jesus uses the personal pronouns, he and him, to refer to the Holy Spirit. Now, understand in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is always, and I mean always, referred to as he, not it. And that's important Again, to go back to this idea of the Holy Spirit being some sort of impersonal force, the Holy Spirit is not a force that acts upon you, but a person who interacts with you, who works in you and through you. The Holy Spirit is a he. He is a personal uh, realization of the presence of God in our lives. He is a full person of the Trinity. Second, notice in verse 7 that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit the title of helper. Now, the Greek word there is paraclete, and it means a whole lot more than helper. In fact, some translations, maybe your translation says this, some translations translate this as an advocate. Now, it's actually a legal title. The title paraclete is a Greek legal title for a defense attorney. And so when Jesus says that he will send another helper, he is literally saying, I'm going to send you a defense attorney. I'm going to send you someone who will come alongside of you and will defend you and will give you the power to stand against the attacks of Satan. But Jesus also does an interesting play on this idea, which brings me to the third personal attribute of the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 8, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness and judgment. Now, notice this neat play on words. For the believer, the Holy Spirit is a defense attorney. He's an advocate. For the world, he's a prosecutor. For the believer, he defends us against the attacks of Satan and, and uh, do, gives us the power to withstand uh, the, the ways of this world and to resist sin and Satan and death and hell. He gives us the defense uh, of the Spirit for all of those things. But to the unbeliever, he is a convictor of sin and righteousness and the judgment that is to come. So he is both the defense and the prosecution. In both cases, for the believer, the defense, for the unbeliever, the prosecutor. And this brings me to the second characteristic of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is powerful. So to see this, I just want you to take a stroll with me in your mind through the Old Testament, through the Bible as a whole. The first time that we ever see the word Spirit, if you think about from your study of Scripture The first time that we ever see the word spirit in our Bibles is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And there we read that as God is creating the world, the spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. Now, the Hebrew word that we translate for spirit is ruah. In fact, it even sounds like what it describes, ruah, and it literally means wind or breath. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it describes the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep, it literally means the breath of God was hovering over the face of the deep. So here's why this matters. Later on, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 22, as God is bringing that terrible judgment on the world of the flood that will destroy all of life, and the flood waters are rushing in over the earth. We read this. It says, Everything in whose nostrils was the ruah of life died. Everything in whose nostrils was the breath or the spirit of life died. The word for breath there is the same word for spirit that is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So one way that the Holy Spirit is powerful is in the fact that he is the life-giving power of God. When God created the world, life came to be by the power of his Spirit. When God formed the shape of man out of the dust of the earth, that clay became a living being only when God breathed his Spirit into man. When you breathe. You breathe because of the power of the Spirit of God that sustains you. The Holy Spirit is the power of God that enables life to exist and to be sustained in this world. So now we see something even more beautiful in the New Testament. The New Testament is not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. And in in Greek, the word for spirit is... Is pneuma, P N E U M A. You might notice that that is at the beginning of the word pneumonia, which is a disease of the lungs or the disease of the breath. So pneuma means breath or wind, just like ruah does. There's a masterful way that Jesus plays on this word in John chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. In that, you'll remember that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because he wants to ask how someone can enter the kingdom of God. And before he can ever ask his question, Jesus tells him that in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus, the ever faithful Pharisee, says, "Okay, well, if I must be born again, how can I do that? Shall I enter my mother's womb a second time? But Jesus tells him in verse six, Unless you are born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying that the only way that you can be saved is if the Holy Spirit causes a second birth in your life. Friend, understand that just like Adam was a lump of clay until God knelt down and breathed His Spirit into him, so too you were a dead man walking until God changed your heart through the power of His Spirit. The conversion of any man or woman from a rank sinner to a believing saint is a miracle that is wrought only by the power of God's Spirit. It is only by the power of God's Spirit that we who are believers today can say that we have been converted, that our hearts have been changed. It is because of God's good grace through the work of His Spirit and the preaching of His Word that anyone comes to faith in Christ. And so, just as God created the world by the power of His Spirit, so too God saves humanity by the power of His Spirit. He makes new life by the power of Spirit. Of his spirit. So, the final characteristic of the Holy Spirit that I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit is the real presence of God. And to see this, let's consider Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Flip over there with me, if you will. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now if you know the the story behind this story of how uh, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus ministered to His disciples for 40 days and then He ascended into heaven and He told them to wait in Jerusalem until He sent His Spirit. And up until this point, the disciples really had the power to do nothing. They, They were afraid. They were locked away in their own rooms. They, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know the direction to go. They were, uh, they were cowering in, in one sense behind the wall that, uh, from which Jesus had left them. And they were afraid of, of what the Romans might do. They were afraid of all of those things. And yet Jesus comes to them and as he leaves them, he tells them, that he will give them his their spirit and it is by the power of that spirit that they will go forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And a few days later, the Holy Spirit comes upon them on the day of Pentecost and they go out into the streets of Jerusalem and they preach the gospel and by the miracle of the Holy Spirit... What they preach is translated so that each of the, uh, those who hear it, hear it in their own languages. And 3,000 souls are saved on that day. And what you see is that the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, enables that believer to follow Jesus' commands and not just to follow them, but to be motivated and empowered to do so that they are bold. They go from those who are sheeps, uh, sheepish and afraid to those who are bold and willing to face persecution. They go from those who seem to have no understanding to those who write the epistles and send the gospel out into the uttermost parts of the earth. They go from those who are fishermen and and, and tax collectors and, uh, and, and all of the rabble of the world to those who change this world through the power of the gospel. And they do all of that because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this passage is just one example of how God is with us in the presence of His Spirit. The Spirit enables us to understand His Word. The Spirit gives us godly wisdom. The Spirit convicts us when we sin. The Spirit gives us the words to pray when we don't know how. The Spirit empowers us to tell others about Jesus. And the Spirit reminds us that we belong to God. So friend, the Holy Spirit, may this very hour be calling you to salvation. It may be that you have heard every last argument that can be made for Christianity. It may be that you know all the facts about Jesus. You've heard all the stories. And now you've fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit calling you to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Won't you respond to that call today and come and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And know Him to be the one who empowers you and is present with you by His Spirit. Brothers and sisters, whether we know it or not, we have the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit at work in us, even this very moment. I've been asked many times by believers why they don't sense or experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And now there are many reasons. I don't want to to lump all of it into one reason But let me suggest one reason that you, as a believer, might not be experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you don't experience the power of the Spirit because you don't trust Him to act. Like in the parable of the talents, you have received the gift of the Spirit, but you've hoarded it, thinking that there's no way you could put it to use. There's no way you could put that power to use. Instead of sharing the gospel, you shrink back and allow a little excuse to prevent you from seeing God at work through you. Instead of stopping in any moment of need to pray that God would give you the wisdom or the strength, you choose to bull through and do it by your own might. Experiencing the real power and presence of the Holy Spirit is not some magic trick or some second blessing, It's as simple as being obedient to the difficult things that God has called you to do. It's as simple as knowing that God has commanded you to tell others about Him and trusting that by the power of His Spirit, you'll be able to do it. It's as simple as thinking, I don't know the answer to this problem and instead of worrying about it, I'm going to hit my knees in prayer and ask the Lord to work. It's as simple as Asking the Lord to reveal to you through his spirit and through his word, the truth and the will for your life. It's as simple as trusting God in those difficult things and allowing him to work in you and through you. In those moments, the Holy Spirit will work. If you are in Christ, you have his spirit. So now act like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for the presence of Your Spirit in our lives. Lord, as we leave this place to serve You, I pray that we would go by the power of Your Spirit, that we would live in faithfulness because we know that Your Spirit is with us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.